Welcome to the nationally syndicated In the Oil Patch radio show with Kim Pilato, broadcasting from the Port of Corpus Christi studios. Get more on the Port of Corpus Christi at portofcc.com. In the Oil Patch radio show will give you an inside look at the oil, gas, and energy industry and how it affects you from industry experts and government officials right here on the In the Oil Patch radio show. And now it's time for me to welcome my guest, Ken Medlock III, who is the Senior Director with the Baker Institute, which was founded by Rice University in 1993. Ken, welcome back to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. Thanks, Ken. It's good to be here. I've interviewed you before, years back. I believe we were attending a conference together at Deloitte's, one of their conferences that they put on. And we had a great interview with you, but I'm glad that you decided to come back and talk to us a little bit about what you're working on. Um, but give us a little breakdown of what the Baker Institution is all about that was founded in 1993 by Rice University. Yeah, so the Baker Institute is uh, a think tank, university-based think tank, that um, tries to really focus on data uh, to support analysis of markets and policy. Uh, we have multiple programs. Uh, I, of course, lead the Center for Energy Studies, but we have programs that look at health policy, at uh, immigration policy, at various aspects of economic policy, um, lots of different things that even, even either have a direct focus on the U.S. or internationally with some, some regional focus in Mexico, for example, Latin America, Middle East, uh, Eurasia. So we, we kind of cover the world, uh, very global looking. Um, and again, we bring uh, data to uh, to bear in order to analyze some some of the world's most pressing issues. Um, that tends to uh, put us in a place where we and I often tell my my staff this, you know, elevate, don't advocate. Uh, it's really about getting the truth out there so that real uh, conversations that are productive can be had about some of these issues. Because without a doubt, there's a number of issues we face on a, on a, you know, as a, as a, as a global population on a, on a day-to-day -day basis, on an annual basis. And unless the, the reality is, is presented, there's no way that policymakers can actually come up with, with rational, uh, rational solutions. Well, that's a good point right there. Uh, are we really having rational discussions when we talk about the world's energy needs and why I'd like your opinion on this is we know that the world's population is only going to increase in the future. And we also see a lot of people use the word energy transition. I don't really see it as a transition. I see it as an evolution as we are on the march to try to find greener ways to develop our energy. Uh, but it seems like we're adding more than removing more. And as we go up uh, or, or minimize our oil and natural gas footprint, we're also increasing in the areas of solar and wind and other energy that we see coming on. But we're not really losing any, we're actually adding it to the grid. And so is that sustainable in the way of we have to lower our carbon footprint at the Institute? Bakers, do you guys are actually breaking down a lot of these topics that we're not really making a whole, they're not making a whole lot of sense right now when you look at how are we going to achieve this if our, like you said, our elected officials are not, they're not experts in this area like you guys are. So I want to cover an article that you helped write, and it was basically, it's titled The Pride and Prejudice of Sustainability, Rethinking Sustainability from a Systems Perspective. But before we get started on that article that you released November the 8th, first, we're going to talk about ESG, Environmental Social Governance. Break it down for our listeners. What is this? So that way we can get into your report. Sure. Um Boy, that's a. We could probably spend the next hour just talking about ESG. It's it's 
uh, it stands for environmental social governance, right? It's really about um, addressing uh, various issues in a collective way uh, to promote um, outcomes that are beneficial in, in also in multiple ways. So, uh, for example, how do we actually address the potential environmental harm associated with an action? How do we address the potential social impacts associated with an action? And then actually, how do we institute governance and the right institutions, quite frankly, so that we can um, actually deliver what we promised to deliver to investors, to shareholders, to the general public. I mean, all of these things sort of rolled up into a single bundle, right? And the definition I just gave you uh, is, um, it's something that people are still discussing, right? It's what, what exactly do we mean by ESG? What are we trying to accomplish when we talk about ESG reporting, for example, for firms? Um, and depending on who you ask, they will emphasize a different aspect of that, without mm -hmm. a doubt. Yeah. Um, and so that makes this really a, a difficult issue to tackle. Um, probably one of the most uh, most discussed issues uh, related to ESG has really been around reporting. So, you know, the SEC, for example, stepping in and, and proposing rules um, for companies to uh, report climate impacts, social impacts. Um, you know, unfortunately, in a lot of the ESG discussion, the E has been dominant in most of those conversations. Um, S has risen a bit in the last couple of years as this has matured. Uh, but G, uh, the governance aspect, is something that is often not even brought to the fore. Uh, it's important, though, when you think about policy and regulation as, as they relate to ESG, that you actually address all three. Um, because at the end of the day, you're not going to uh, ring all the bells, so to speak, unless you do. Um, yeah. You know, at the end of the day, also, a company is is beholden to its shareholders. Um, any company is in business because it is able to generate a rate of return for expended capital. Um, shareholders are not going to typically uh, continue to pour capital into companies that don't generate positive rates of return. And so the thing that you always have to wrestle with when you're addressing ESG is, are we end up are we going to end up starving certain in industry segments of capital that is required for them to do their business? And then what are the broader social impacts and economic impacts of that kind of outcome? So if you lean too heavily into E, you might forget those other things and um, you end up in, a, in, in ultimately a, a cycle that's unsustainable. So to bring it into sustainability, right? Because you have to, and we'll get into this, I'm sure in a few minutes, you have to be able to address everything that matters in order for an outcome to be sustainable. And, and just addressing the doesn't necessarily get you there. It doesn't mean it's not important, but it, it means that you have to think about other aspects of the, of the issue. So Ken, in your report, it's specifically, you write the article, sustainability is the life cycle balance, balancing across several vectors. Achieving sustainability in its truest form requires system-level approach that considers a wide range of environmental, social, and economic factors to assess how they interact. And it evaluates things like government policies, geopolitical impact on indigenous communities, social economics, and demographic influences are a few in there. So it's quite complicated. And I just wanted to give our listeners an understanding when they hear yeah. we're, we're on the march to net zero and companies, large companies are saying, you know, we're going to lower our carbon footprint by 2030, 2050. These are some of the, this is the tools that you're talking about that they're using. And so in this report, again, titled The Pride and Prejudice of Sustainability, Rethinking Sustainability from a Systems Perspective, ESG seems to be, to me, we are trying to do the best we can, but a lot of these things are unknown, so we're kind of making it up as we go. 
And in this report, this great report, you talk about sustainability bias. Let's get into that. First, give me what is sustainability bias? Why is this important? So it's sustainability bias is like any bias, right? It's really the eye of the beholder. So if I can almost guarantee if you were to survey all the listeners here and ask them what to them is sustainability, you would almost invariably get a thousand different answers. Um, and so we have to kind of step back and when we say bias, understand that it's about perspective. Mm -hmm. um, often when we get into a discussion about sustainability, you hear a heavy emphasis on environment and lately on climate. Right. So a discussion about a sustainable future is often uh, in many circles rooted in a discussion about climate change. So taking a step away from that, then the natural sort of evolution of that conversation is we need to eliminate fossil fuels. Um, and it might even go as far as the oil, gas and coal industries need to go away. Right. Well, it's not really a stretch if you were to walk down that path to figure out that there are a lot of there's a lot of turbulence introduced into the global system if that's the path you walk. Um, for example, uh, and, and I used this example in a lecture just the other day, but um, there's a lot of uh, interest and emphasis, quite frankly, in using legal channels to go after major oil companies um, mm -hmm. on, on climate grounds. Uh, and this goes as far in some advocate circles to um, you know be construed as, well, they need to go out of business, they need to go away, there's a you know, there's there's a there's a thought in some circles that the industry is evil, right? I mean, we we hear these things all the time. Demonized very much. Yes, exactly. Um, the the fundamental issue with that is, first of all, you have to understand all the data. So in in 2022, um, Exxon Mobil, for example, produced in terms of its its raw crude oil production about 2.35 million barrels a day. That sounds like a big number, but when you look at the global market, it's not. It's actually a relatively small fraction of the overall market system. Um, the six super majors combined, so this is Exxon, ENI, Total, you know, Chevron, Shell, BP, they produce less oil than Aramco produced last year. So it begs the question, going after individual international majors, what does that actually accomplish, right? Because in point of fact, if you're in the United States, for example, and you're operating you know, properties in West Texas, um, if for some reason that company goes out of business, company X goes out of business, maybe it's through legal pressures or whatever, those assets don't disappear. They actually get rolled up in the, in, into bankruptcy filings and get redistributed and the production doesn't go away. So you then have to beg the question, well, then how do you actually address the issue? Well, it gets even more complicated. And by the way, that, that signals there's a demand side solution potentially to this, but yeah. it gets even more complicated when you start to look at the global supply portfolio, about two thirds of global production is in the hands of national oil companies. And those national oil companies are beholden to their host governments. And the host governments, quite frankly, use those revenues to support a variety of economic interests within their own countries. So I ask you a simple question. Envision a world where in the next 10 to 20 years, oil disappears. What happens to all of those countries? Right? It creates a massive amount of geopolitical instability that I'm not sure anybody in the West is, is prepared to deal with. And right. so that's where you get into what are the other ramifications? What are the additional impacts of the, the concerted action to really reduce the production and use of oil? Well, there, there are knock-on effects that are massive. And it doesn't discount you know, concerns about climate change. It's just that you have to realize there are other impacts that are not necessarily climate-related, but that are equally um, as dangerous for for, for civilization. So, yeah. 
Absolutely. You know, you know Ken, I've been uh, uh, on the air for about eight years and through all of the interviews, one thing is becoming clear, which is there are no countries that are doing well if they are if they are in energy poverty. It also right. when, they, when they don't have access to reliable energy, which would be oil and natural gas still to today, their infant mortality rate is higher. They don't live as long as people in the West do. Everything in the quality of life, we have to start thinking about it in that way. And in your report, sustainability bias, you really cover how important it is to look and see if we're going to limit industries by the ESG radar and we're making it up as we go, there's a lot to think about. Like you said earlier, that it's very complicated. When we come back from break, I want to try to focus back in on the bias and then move into how complex of a system is it going to require and do we have to rethink this? And that's kind of what your report is alluding to. But let's take a quick break. You're listening to Animal Patch Radio Show. We'll be right back. And we're back. You're listening to End Oil Patch Radio Show. My guest today is Ken Medlock, who is the Baker Institute's Center's Senior Director. Ken, before the break, we were talking about a report that you co-authored. It was, it's titled Pride and Prejudice of Sustainability, Rethinking Sustainability from a Systems Perspective. And I want to jump back into this because you guys are now releasing a brand new uh, newsletter. It's called Energy 360. And it's really needed. I encourage our listeners to go to your website, Baker Institute, and sign up for it. But in this report, you're you're basically breaking down that as we move into ESG and looking at what does that mean to us in your report, you're basically alluding to that it's very complicated. The the sustainability bias that actually we have right now, um, and when we're looking at ESG, it's not fully figured out yet it if you it, it's kind of like um if you are just focusing on the industries it's going to affect the finances of of how these projects are financed or governments that you as you said earlier so i want to get back on that tell me a little bit about how complex you think this is and do we have to think about it in different layers or level Tell me about your report that says sustainability is complex, sure. requires system level thinking. What is that? Absolutely. So I'll I'll back up um, at the very uh, sort of opening. You you mentioned you know two words: energy transition. Um, and first of all, uh, there is no such thing as a single energy transition. It's energy transitions. Um, in other words, you're going to see things evolve differently everywhere. Uh, and understanding why is a great way to really begin to digest how complex this entire discussion is. Mm -hmm. uh, sustainability at its core, uh, particularly when you think about energy, is connected to the idea of transitioning energy systems around the world to lower carbon footprints, lower environmental impact overall, I would say, but at the same time, continuing to facil facilitate growth. Um, you know, the comments you made to sort of open this, this, this segment was around energy poverty and how countries that don't have access to modern energy services are generally not that well off. Um, you have to first understand why. I mean, if you think about basic electricity services, they facilitate things like clean water, running water, um, because of water sanitation services actually require energy. They facilitate refrigeration services, which are great for 
you know, those of us who like to, you know, air condition our homes, but they're also vitally important for a variety of health services, such as, you know, uh, keeping vac vaccines and other medications, um, you know, reliable and usable for a long period of time. And so it has direct implications for one of the things you mentioned, like infant mortality. Um, so energy is vital. Um, vital for well-being uh, and higher standards of living. And that's not really going to change anytime soon. Um, as we uh, uh, sort of step into a discussion about sustainability, if you understand that basic point, you begin to understand at a deeper level what a truly sustainable outcome is. But notice, in order to get there, we have to actually have a discussion about the overall energy system and the overall economic system so that we connect, can connect those two and ultimately begin to understand what it means to be sustainable. Um, just being uh, low carbon is not, necess not necessarily sustainable. Um, because what if the low carbon outcome that you propose leads to significantly higher costs and promotes greater uh, greater energy insecurity. Um, that is, uh, that's not an outcome really anybody wants to see, wants to see going forward. Um, it's, it's really important for most populations that they continue to see improvements in living standards. Uh, and this goes beyond just clean air, clean water. It goes into roof over my head, food on my plate, uh, clothes on my back. Um, all the typical things we talk about when we talk about well-being. So you have to truly think about the entire energy and economic system if you want to get to a truly sustainable outcome. And so that's really at a high level what we're talking about. So so I'm going to drill down into it because okay. in your report, it says a part of it says the primary focus on climate and admissions just two elements of a wide range environment leg while ignoring the socioeconomic and financial yeah. commercial financial leg is a three part like stool. So yeah. trying to, just to imagine yeah. it, but it will eventually lead to collapse or the system's failure in sustainability. Sustainability is thus a balance of all three domains. Therefore, yes. understanding the first order impacts the specific action is never sufficient because the law of unintended consequences is ever present, often predictable, and can render specific pathways of unsustainability. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want you to tell me what that is. Your report continues on and says sustainability is not a property of something. So let's take a quick break. You're listening to in the Old Patch Radio Show, we're going to get into the unintended consequences when we return from break. Attention small and medium-sized business owners. Are you feeling overwhelmed with back office tasks like payroll, workers' compensation, federal regulations, safety laws, employment standards, and benefits? Don't worry, Unique HR has your back. For over 30 years, our team of qualified professionals has been providing people-centered solutions to help businesses like yours navigate the heavy burden of running a business and managing their workforce. We're the PEO with a pulse, and we are just a phone call away. Call us today at 361-852-6392. Unique HR, the partner you can trust. Are you a business owner feeling overwhelmed where to begin your business's online presence? Maybe you've spent thousands of dollars in the past just to be highly disappointed with the results. We understand because we were once you. Since then, we decided to hire the very best experts to help us and you. Let us send you our business profile that will quickly show you your Google business rankings in these five areas. Reputation, ratings online, website, 
advertising and social media, and search engine optimization. All of these areas really affect how Google ranks your entire listing. So if ranking on page one is your goal, pick up the phone and call us now, 210-240-7188, or simply go to shalemag.com slash business profile. We'll be in contact with you within 24 hours. Once again, pick up the phone and call us now, 210-240-7188, or simply go to shalemag.com. That's S-H-A-L-E-M-A-G.com slash business profile. Start dealing with a company you can trust and always find. In the oil and gas industries, you don't just need a workers' comp provider. You need a workers' comp provider who understands your business. That's Texas Mutual Insurance Company. At Texas Mutual, they've created the Texas Oil and Gas Association Safety Group exclusively for businesses involved with exploration and production. That means you'll have access to information and safety resources that fit the way you work. But the advantages don't stop there. As a safety group member, you'll receive a premium discount on your workers' comp. Plus, you can qualify for double dividends. You heard that right. Members can earn an additional dividend on top of the one you receive as a policyholder. It's all part of Texas Mutual's commitment to working as a partner with the businesses that keep our state running. Texas Mutual and the Texas Oil and Gas Association, two great organizations that are even better together. To see if you qualify to become a safety group member, go to TexasMutual.com TXOGA. And we're back. You're listening to an old patch radio show. My guest today is Ken Medlock, who is the Baker Institute Center Senior Director. Ken, before the break, we were covering the article that you co-authored titled The Pride and Prejudice of Sustainability, Rethinking Sustainability from a Systems Perspective. And we talked about what is ESG, what's driving um, most of the ESG changes is, is really geared towards the environment. And we kind of covered what are some of the unintended consequences when we look at how we're doing this, how how we're rating this ESG. And a lot of it is, we've never done this before, so we're kind of doing it as we go. And does it or does it not make sense? In your report, I'm gathering, this is just my personal thought, I'm gathering where we really need to evaluate this. We probably are not doing this correct. So let's talk about in your report, sustainability is not a property of something. What are the unintended consequences when we start looking at lowering our ESG or or carbon footprint through ESG? So I'm going to take a step back because prior to the break, you, you referenced the sustainability stool as a way to think about sustainability. And I think it's a great way to frame um, basically this entire conversation. So Imagine um, sustainability as a platform uh, or a tabletop, if you will, where the 17 UN Sustainable Development Goals are that tabletop. Well, how do you actually ensure that all of those goals are met um, and you end up with sustainable growth long term? Uh, You have to think about what holds that that platform up. Um, And you can think about it like a three-legged stool. Uh, One of them, of course, is environment. So um, if if you are ignoring environmental harm uh, associated with various actions, um, it could be industrial activity activity. It could be waste, um, which of course raises the you know the notion of the importance of recycling. Um, uh, but if you're ignoring those issues, you ultimately end up causing harm to the ecosystem, and and it can lead to ecosystem collapse, which is generally not good at all for an economy. So you have to really pay attention to environmental issues. 
Um, at the same time, though, you also have to pay attention to socioeconomic issues. So when we say socioeconomic issues, it's not just about like social justice platforms. Those matter, but it's also about well-paying jobs and the ability for households to, um, you know, generate uh, wealth and ultimately savings and, and bequests for future generations. Um, if if you're ignoring those things, then generally you're not going to see uh, successful growth, sustainable growth, largely because um, the population uh, within an economy or a given region is not actually reaping the benefits of the activities that are going we, ongoing. We see this. We have seen this historically, for example, in some countries that uh, you've seen, you know, just rampant uh, 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 corruption, for example, associated with resource development, where the general the overall per capita income level looks really promising. But when you look at the distribution of income, it's it's completely warped towards a very small fraction of the population. And those outcomes generally don't last either. They're not sustainable. Um, but then there's a third leg to this, which is often completely ignored in sustainability conversations, but it's equally as important. And that's the commercial and financial leg. Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, if you are a company that wants to do business in a particular economy, um, particular region, country, whatever the case may be, you are only going to be successful if you can generate a profit. If you can actually generate a return to shareholders, if you can generate a return that's sufficient to pay back debt, right? So all of these things are critically important if you want to see an enterprise that is lasting. And so when you think about those three legs, if any one of them is malnourished, so to speak, then the stool collapses. So you can't let any, any one of them be weak. Now, there are three buttresses that tie all of this together. Um, one of them, of course, is innovation. It's very important that innovation be fostered and promoted so that you can get the kind of economic growth that will beget greater socioeconomic well-being that will actually beget better environmental outcomes. So innovation is critical to all three of these legs. But so are things like market design and policy. If you don't have the right policies in place, the right institutions in place, the right regulatory structures in place, then you can see an overemphasis on one or two legs and not all three, and ultimately that will lead to collapse of the system. So when you think about a systems level approach sustainability, you have to think about all of those things together. And that unfortunately is not something that a lot of people do. And so that's actually, that's that's in a nutshell what we tried to really highlight with this piece. And you did an amazing job. I, again, I'm gonna encourage my listeners, go to the Baker Institute and look up your report because it really does break things down. We're going to take a quick break, but Kim, when we come back from break, now I want to get into the U.S. Security Exchange Commission's proposed climate disclosure requirements for ESG. How is that going to complicate an already complicated topic, if you will? Let's take a quick break. You're listening to an Old Patch Radio Show. We'll be right back. Hey, when you're in business, you have to make a lot of tough choices. So let's talk about an easy one, your workers' comp coverage. If you're a propane or butane dealer or operator, you need to join the Lone Star Energy Safety Group through Texas Mutual Insurance Company. As a member, you'll automatically get a discount on your premium plus you can earn double dividends that'll go straight into your pocket. It's the easiest decision you'll ever make. Find out more at TexasMutual.com slash Lone Star Energy. 
And we're back. You're listening to you on the Old Patch Radio Show. My guest today is Ken Medlock, who is with the Baker Institute, and he is the center's senior director. Ken, before the break, we were covering an article that you co-authored titled The Pride and Prejudice of Sustainability, Rethinking Sustainability from a Systems Perspective. And in this report, it's really you're really hitting home of how this is is, is panning out when we talk about ESG, ESG meaning environment, social, and governance and how that is affecting all of us as we look at our energy needs for the future. And as we are in this evolution, if you will, of trying to lower our carbon footprint, specifically of lowering and getting off coal, natural gas, and crude to more greener energy forms, ESG has come in and is taking a lead role pertaining to um, how we're going to figure this out in the future. In your article, you discuss how ESG should not be construed as sustainability. So tell me a little bit about what is ESG in the way of how is it being created? And there's now the U.S. Security Exchange Commission proposed climate change disclosure requirements for companies that are public. How is that going to change things? So, uh, wow, that's a... That's a big that one. might be two questions. <laughs> yeah. Um, look, the ESG is 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 constantly evolving, right? Um, yeah. And you know, lately the conversation around ESG and you know what firms should or shouldn't do, what investors should or shouldn't favor, um, you know, when they're evaluating where to put their money. Um, you know, it's been very heavily focused on environment with a with a with a with a massive emphasis on climate, right? So mm-hmm. greenhouse gas reporting, for example. Uh, ESG, of course, is much bigger than just that. Um, and one of the points about ESG is not sustainability is precisely that, right? If we just focus on the E and ESG and only one aspect of the E at that, if we just focus, for example, on carbon emissions, we are missing a host of other things that as an investor or as a firm are actually important for the decision that we ultimately need to make with regard to where we're going to put our money or what kind of investments we're going to make or what kind of, uh, what kind of market activities we're going to engage in. Um, If policy leans too heavily into only one aspect of that, it will tilt or distort our decision-making process, which could ultimately unleash a wave of unintended consequences that, uh, either lead to unprofitability or spikes in price or supply chain constraints, uh, a host of things that ultimately will tr- matriculate into the consumers and to households and to budgets. So um, we have to think about everything. We can't just think about one aspect of this. So, um, I, you know, one example are some of the greenhouse gas reporting requirements that are being discussed and, and the discussion around scope one, scope two, scope three emissions. Um, you know, I, when I started looking at this a, a couple of years ago, it was really interesting to me because you realize very quickly when you're looking at a supply chain, you up and down a supply chain, depending on where you are along that supply chain, every aspect of that supply chain needs to work in order for a product to be delivered to the market. So if we're talking about pharmaceuticals, if we're talking about energy products, if we're talking about plastics, if we're talking about consumer goods, there is a very long supply chain that has touch points with ultimately the energy industry at some point. 
So when we start to focus on scope one, two, and three emissions and ask one entity in that supply chain to handle all of them, we're actually ignoring the implications of not asking other entities in that supply chain to do the same. And in point of fact, if everybody just focused on their scope one emissions, you handle the emissions along the entire supply chain. But that requires getting every actor to effectively address their own scope one emissions. Um, in many respects, that could be more efficient. The problem is, is no, there's no way to really incentivize that, right? There's no way to price that in, which is why, quite frankly, a lot of economists, instead of taking a heavy-handed regulatory approach, argue that you ought to price the externality. So in other words, tax carbon. And a lot of energy companies have said, yeah, if we had a CO2 price, we'd actually know how to do business. So absent a direct intervention like that, there's going to be a lot of uncertainty that remains. And if we use the you know, the long arm of regulation to try to control this, um, it can get reinterpreted with a new administration, you know, new appointments at different agencies. It, it just injects more uncertainty to the entire process. So um, it's important, first of all, that you understand that, right, before you can get to a point where you can actually say, okay, well, what do we need to do if we're going to take this sort of ESG um mantle forward and really think about how to drive a sustainable outcome. ESG by itself, hopefully that's what comes out of what I just said, is not sustainability because it entirely depends on how it's regulated, how it's implemented. Um, it can be, sustainability can be an outcome of various ESG directed measures, but it's not guaranteed. You actually have to have that systems level approach in order for a sustainable outcome to ultimately be uh, achieved. Well, you know, in your report, as you said earlier, you were focusing a lot on climate. And when you look and you realize, okay, so if we if we uh, lower our carbon footprint with oil and natural gas and move to what the NGOs are, you know, in favor of, which is solar and wind, they they, they believe that that's greener, which they're not really green either but they might be a little greener, but they're not the solution because when you look at it, they cannot exist or be created without oil and gas. So in your report, you kind of go into that, like it's these unintended consequences that we don't think about. Well, we want to go to yeah. solar and wind. If you turn off oil and natural gas, you're not going to get solar or wind because they're a byproduct of it. Tell me, we are going to go to break, but when we come back, I want you to explain to me in your report, the carbon tunnel vision. And let's get a little further into that. Let's take a quick break. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. We'll be right back. Are you a business owner feeling overwhelmed where to begin your business's online presence? Maybe you've spent thousands of dollars in the past just to be highly disappointed with the results. We understand because we were once you. Since then, we decided to hire the very best experts to help us and you. Let us send you our business profile that will quickly show you your Google business rankings in these five areas. Reputation ratings online, website, advertising and social media, and search engine optimization. All of these areas really affect how Google ranks your entire listing. So if ranking on page one is your goal, pick up the phone and call us now, 210-240-7188, or simply go to shalemag.com slash business profile. We'll be in contact with you within 24 hours. Once again, pick up the phone and call us now. 210-240-7188 or simply go to shalemag.com. That's S-H-A-L-E-M-A-G.com slash business profile. Start dealing with a company you can trust and always find. 
any business can benefit from advertising to the oil and gas industry, but it's really important to partner with a marketing company that has a proven track record with this growing industry. Shale Oil and Gas Business Magazine is the one-stop shop that'll keep you in front of the customers that you need to grow your business. So let's start growing your business in Texas. Email us, info at shalemag.com. Again, that's info at shale, S-H-A-L-E, mag, M-A-G, dot com. Or you can call us, 210-240-7188. Again, that's 210-240-7188. Shale Oil & Gas Business Magazine provides services like print advertising and digital marketing. Our digital advertising services include website, email, radio, video, and social media. Shale also provides specialized web services from website management to search engine optimization and social media management. Visit our website, shalemag.com. Once again, that's shale, S-H-A-L-E, mag, M-A-G, dot com to learn more. Shale is your one-stop shop for growing your business. Pick up the phone today and call 210-240-7188. Again, 210-240-7188. And we're back. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. My guest today is Ken Medlock III, who is with the Baker Institute. He is the center's senior director. Ken, before the break, we were discussing the report that you co-authored. It's titled The Price and Prejudice of Sustainability, Rethinking Sustainability from a Systems Perspective. And it's really focusing a lot on ESG and these consequences of how we are putting ESG together. There has also been some movement pertaining to there are recommendations from the U.S. Security Exchange Commission proposed climate disclosure requirements. You list that in this report of what those suggestions are, but give our listeners an understanding of in your report you discussed today's narrow vision of sustainability creates carbon tunnel vision. What is that? So um, I'll, I'll kind of try to weave in what we were discussing just before the break uh, into that that statement. Right. What is carbon tunnel vision? Um, I think people don't fully understand or comprehend that one of the reasons that transitions, energy transitions are so complex because they really are, mm-hmm. um, is that they ultimately are linked to materials transitions as well. So if we're going to talk about moving to things like wind and solar, for example, and batteries, um, so an all renewable zero carbon grid, um, Ultimately, we're going to have to have a conversation about nuclear power. That's that's always going to be present um, because it's dispatchable. It is um, reliable when it's on, it's on. Um, it's, it's very different emissions. than exactly zero emissions. It's very different than other types of uh, renewable, uh, other renewable um, energy resources, which are what we call intermittent. So when the wind's not blowing, the sun's not shining, you don't you don't get those things. Um, the 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 idea of carbon tunnel vision and materials transition very much connects to um, a host of things related to trying to electrify the world and do it only with renewables. So um, there are many components in in a solar array, in a wind farm that derive directly from uh, the oil industry. Uh, And without rethinking how you would develop those components, you cannot divorce those industries from oil. Now, what's interesting about uh, you know renewables, wind and solar is they are when they're when they're installed, they are lower, um, they're lower variable cost. They are lower emission. That is definitely true. That's undeniable. But you have to take a step back and think about the life cycle of these things. How long do they last? What do we do with them when they reti- when they're retired? Uh, at the moment, a lot of these components are just being landfilled. Um, 
Is there a way to actually think about re-X, which is recycle, repurpose, reuse, re-everything, right? So that you can alleviate stresses that might emerge on the supply chains that are going to ultimately have to expand to provide the materials that are required to continue to build these things and replace things as they get retired. Um, that right now can't be done without the oil industry. So it creates a circularity that is um, oftentimes missed in conversations about you know, what a transition to renewable power actually means. Um, there's another thing that is becoming very apparent to a lot of folks, and that's namely that when you expand renewable generation capacity on a grid, you also see an increasing reliance on natural gas as the balancing fuel. Mm -hmm. So you're not going to necessarily be able to divorce yourself from that for a while until there are some significant innovations and in other dispatchable forms of generation. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you look at like the state of Texas ERCOT, um, this last summer, we had a really interesting development in that there were multiple conservation alerts and people pointed to, you know, well, it's because it's hot. Um, but in point of fact, that's not the only reason. We've also had significant load growth across the state because the population keeps growing. The economy keeps growing. That means we need more electricity. Uh, but what's interesting is back in roughly 2019, peak demand at ERCOT eclipsed for the first time dispatchable generation capacity, which meant everything that you were going to try to do to meet peak demands ultimately would be relying on intermittent resources, so wind and solar. Um, that very quickly has revealed itself to be an unsustainable outcome because you need dispatchable resources because occasionally the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine. Um, and we saw this summer there's a window of time every day when the sun is setting and the wind really hasn't picked up, up yet where you really need to rely on dispatchable generation resources to keep the grid rolling so that you know we don't notice that, that there's a problem. Um, if we continue to expand renewables without dispatchable generation, that is only going to get worse. Um, and you're seeing elements of this in other places around the world. There's concerns about, uh, in Germany, for example, increased electrification and the introduction of electric vehicles and the addition of heat pumps and things like this, and how that act actually might lead to certain um, restrictions on delivery of power to customers who rely on yeah. the grid to fuel those things because there's concerns about reliability because they have not been building dispatch. And they generation. are actually going back to coal. As an they, have, they have increased the use of coal. A lot of that is rooted in what's happened with their natural gas market, right? What's That's actually right. been going on there. But, but what it shows you is there is a distinct connection to the need for dispatchable generation and the oil and gas industry. Um, and so when we talk about carbon tunnel vision, if you only focus on reducing CO2 emissions as, as if that's the only goal for a sustainable outcome, you will ignore everything that I just talked about for starters, but then you'll also ignore a host of other issues like waste management. Um, uh, what do you do about uh, existing hazardous waste sites? So Superfund sites in the United States. Um, and there's a, you know. Oh, let me read them for you. Let me read them for you. It's huge. It's it's waste management, clean energy, uh, resource scarcity, education, gender issues, deforestation, health, water crisis, poverty, uh, environmental justice, affordable goods and services, overconsumption, air pollutants. I mean, it goes yeah. on and on. And then as you in your report, it continues to say perspectives matter. And it's talking about that there is not one path forward for sustainability. And we have to think about, I love this in this report, it says progression towards energy transition and sustainable uh, sustainability goals. When you look at their 700 million people, that's 10% of the population still live in extreme poverty. We talked about that earlier in yeah. the show. And 940 million people worldwide do not have access to energy. 
how are we going to do this? Do all these people don't, they don't matter. It's, it's, this report is so worth reading in helping people understand this is complicated, folks. Tell me where to look up this report. We have completely run out of time, but I can't wait to get you sure. to talk about some more of these great reports. Baker Institute, you guys, you're doing it right with writing the truth about energy is complicated. And this is not going to be a simple change. It's going to require a lot of work. And no, I, I appreciate it. Right. You're, you're absolutely right. It is complicated. And, you know, I tell my students this all the time. If you're interested in solving complex and interesting problems, the energy sector is the place to be because right. it is loaded with complicated um, and, and you know, very intensely technical problems that require very sophisticated solutions. Oversimplification does nobody any good. We've got to think about the entirety of this stuff. Think about it from a systems level perspective so that we accomplish the, the ultimate goal, which is sustainable growth. Um, we need to address emissions, but we also need to address socioeconomic concerns. We need to address profitably the 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 path towards decarbonization, because ultimately that's what engenders wealth and provides jobs and and creates opportunities for for everybody. Um, uh, and we can't do that by ignoring segments of the population. To your point, we actually have to be sort of comprehensive in in how we approach this. And it doesn't make it easy. Um, it, it's certainly not a thirty second soundbite or an elevator pitch. But sometimes the world is not that simple. Uh, well, it's and certainly not. With regard to energy and sustainability, it's not. That's correct. Ken, thank you for being a guest on In the Oil Patch Radio Show. We will include the link to this article and more articles that they, that our listeners are welcome to go read. If you want to learn about energy and no spin, it's the truth. This is the reports that they need. They need to visit uh, y'all's website and look and gather the data. Um, thank you again for being a guest on In the Oil Patch Radio Show. Absolutely. In the Oil Patch is where together we explore topics that affect us all in oil, gas, business, and in your community. Every week, your host, Kim Bilotto, will visit with the movers and shakers in this fast-paced industry. You'll hear from industry experts, elected officials, and many more right here on In the Oil Patch.